everybody. If you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14. We're going to look at the first 20 some odd verses of this chapter. Uh, before we get into it, I want to give you a backstory. You kind of know where we're picking up. Saul in this is king at this time. He's king over all Israel. And Jonathan, his son, is like his lead general. Things like that. And so the Israelites go through a battle in chapter 13. They fight the Philistines. So it's a great battle. They win and they blow a trumpet. Everybody in the land finds out about it and there's a great victory. They're very excited about this. But the victory is short-lived. Only lasts a little while because what they do is they awaken, for lack of a better term, no pun intended, the Philistine sleeping giant. This great army comes out against Israel. And you can read about it in chapter 13. Flip over to chapter 13 real quick and look at verse 5. This is the size of this Philistine army that comes out. It says, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people, foot soldiers, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. This is a great army that comes out against them and camps against them. And so this is a reaction of the children of Israel. They have a small army. They say, we can't win. And so you have some who go and they hide. They find false refuges. They go to caves. They go to pits. They go to thickets. They hide. And then you have some that just leave the land altogether. Say, we can't win. We're just going to leave. We'll go to another land. We'll, we'll seek refuge there. And the worst of them were this. You had defectors. People who would go and they said, we can't win, so we're going to align ourselves with the Philistines. We'll align with them to save our own skin. And so the Philistines send the spoilers through. They come through. They take everything in the land. They occupy the land. All of Israel is occupied right now. They even tell them this, you can't have any weapons. The only people in the land that can have a sword or a spear is Jonathan and Saul. That's it. No one else can have a weapon. And it's so stringent that if you want to sharpen your axe, your mattocks, your agriculture tools, you actually have to go to the Philistines to do that. These people are terrified. They are unarmed. They are occupied. Everything is looking down. They're hopeless, they're helpless, but a hero steps up. Somebody decides he is going to do something about this, and it's Jonathan. Now before we get into chapter 14, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning in Christ's name, and we beg, Lord, that you would open your word to us. Lord, meet with us, and Lord, reveal Christ to us in your word. Lord, cause us to look to him that we might see him as our conquering Savior, Lord, that we would see that the, the work is all done. Lord, it is finished. Lord, we beg for your presence and your blessing. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you pick up in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come. And let us go over to the Philistines' garrison, that is on the other side. But he told not his father. This armor bearer would have been the one who carried the weapons, the supplies for the warrior. And Jonathan goes to his armor bearer and he says, Me and you, we're going over to the garrison. We read about it. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, foot soldiers, as many as the sand of the sea. Just me and you, armor bearer, we're going to go over there and we're going to take on that entire army. And here's the interesting thing. He's not going to tell Saul. He probably thinks Saul would try to stop him. He's not going to tell Saul, but we'll read here in a moment. He's not going to tell anybody. 
Jonathan is going out to be the champion of all Israel to fight this battle for them, and no one is going to know about it until the battle has already been won. Look down at verse 2. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migran. And the people that were with him were about 600 men, and Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. Now look at Saul's disposition here. Saul's sitting under a pomegranate tree. He's got this great army encamped against him. He can only muster about 600 men. He is not seeking the Lord's face. He's not seeking deliverance. He's not even seeking a spirit of leadership. All he's doing is sitting there, seemingly resigned to what he believes to be his fate. They're going to come. They're going to wipe us all out. Why even try? Why even try to do anything about it? Why even try to seek the Lord's face? And what he is doing right here is what everybody in Israel is doing. Just waiting. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We are without a Savior. There's nothing that can be done. We'll just wait here until they come and wipe us all out. Now, look over at verse 4. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over under the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other Sena. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. Now, the Philistines had positioned their garrison on a plateau. I think everybody knows what that is, a rise in the earth, cliffs surrounding it, flat top. And militarily, tactically, this makes sense. They sit up top there. They can see in every direction. So if the Israelites try to attack, they see them coming. There seems to be a passageway that leads up there, but it would narrow the attack. They wouldn't have much success going up that way. And then you have these cliffs, two of which are named Boses and Sina. And this is the last place that they would expect an attack from. said, this is humanly insurmountable. Nobody can get up these cliffs. It is impossible for a man to get himself up here and attack us. And that makes sense. You try to climb your army up a cliff, they'll be exhausted by the time they get up there, and the enemy would just drop stuff on them along the way. They said if there's one way, they're definitely not going to get up. It is this humanly insurmountable way up these steep cliffs. And that is exactly the way that Jonathan purposes to attack. Look at verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. And listen to this statement here. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Look at how much confidence Jonathan has in the Lord. And he's not presumptuous at all. He says, it may be. Armor bearer, we are in the hands of a sovereign God. If one thing I know about my God is this, he's in control. And his will is always going to be done. But it may be, if he wills, he will work for us. He will fight this battle for us. And know this, armor bearer, there is no restraint to the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The means don't matter. He's in control of the means. This is the one who creates means. He can take an army of angels, a million of them, conjure them and send them up there and win the battle. He can empower me and you. We'll go up there and fight the battle. If we have the strength of the Lord, we'll win. He can send a cricket up there. It doesn't matter. This is one who creates means. There is no restraint to the Lord to win this battle. We have a sovereign, omnipotent God, armor bearer. Now you look at the confidence that Jonathan has in the Lord. 
Look at the confidence this armor bearer has in Jonathan. Look down here in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Now, I want you to consider this for a minute. Consider what this man is being asked to do. Armor bearer, me and you, the two of us, we're going up against 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers, as many as the sand of the sea. This man didn't ask any questions. He didn't blink an eye. He said, Jonathan, your will be done, and I'm going to follow you wherever you go. You say we're going to go fight them? I'm going. You want to lead me up there? Live or die, sink or swim. I'm following you wherever you go. Whatever your will is, Jonathan, you do what's in your heart. How much confidence did this armor bearer have in Jonathan? Full confidence. I will follow you wherever you go. Look at verse 8. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you. Tarry. Then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us. Then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be the sign unto us. Now he said before, armor bearer, it may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be. But here's the sign, armor bearer. <clears throat> here's how we'll know. We're going to go up to this garrison and we're going to reveal ourselves. No trickery here. We're going to reveal ourselves to this garrison and we're going to look at, listen for two key words. If we hear this, Terry, stop, wait, don't come. We'll know this. The Lord's not in it. He has not granted the victory. If you hear Terry, wait, the Lord's not in it. But if we hear these words, armor bearer, come, come up, we will know for sure that the Lord has granted us the victory. Now look here, look at verse 11. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews came forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Look at these words, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And what they're saying is, You come up here and fight us, and we'll teach you a lesson. Teach you a lesson by coming up here like this. But what are the words that Jonathan is waiting to hear? Come up. Come, not tarry, come up. These are the words. Look what he does. And Jonathan said under his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. Now think about what's happening here. Jonathan says, armor bearer, you come up after me. There's a pathway. These humanly insurmountable cliffs, I've found a pathway. I'm going to climb up these cliffs. I'm going to go first, and you're going to come up after me. Everywhere I put my hand... Armor bearer, that's where you put your hand. Everywhere I put my foot, armor bearer, that's where you put your foot. I'm going to go up first, and you're going to come up right after me, and you're going to come the exact same way I came up. Now, verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men. Within, as it were, a half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. Now they get to the top. 
Jonathan's leading the charge. He sees the first 20 men, and he starts slaying. And he says these men, they all fell before Jonathan. Jonathan would go up, he'd strike down the first one. He'd see the next one, he'd strike him down. And what does it say about the armor bearer? It says the armor bearer slew after him. You know what that means? What was the armor bearer doing? He was hiding behind Jonathan the entire time. Jonathan would come up and he would drop one of those guys down. He'd be down on the ground and the armor bearer would slew after him. He'd stick him on the ground afterwards. Jonathan would strike another one. He'd fall down to the ground. The armor bearer would stick him on the ground. But this is the point. This is the point of the armor bearer. Everything Jonathan did, the armor bearer did. And Jonathan was the doer of all of it. Verse 15. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled. And the earth quaked, so it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. Now Saul has watchmen that can see the Philistine garrison. And they look out. There's a great earthquake. And what's going on? And they look at this garrison. Here's what they see. The entire Philistine army had turned on one another. The Lord sent some spirit of confusion and chaos. They had all turned on one another. And now they were beating down one another. They were killing each other. And they were melting away like snow in droves. Men just hacking each other to pieces. They're going to tell Saul about this. This is interesting. Verse 17. Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now, and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. The watchmen say, Saul, look at this, look at this. And he comes up and he looks, and the Lord is accomplishing this great victory. All his enemies are fighting one another, and they're melting away like snow. They are assured the victory at this point. And Saul gets this idea. He says, I think somebody from my camp is involved here. Number the people. Find out who's missing from us. And then the census takers come back and they say, there's only two missing, Jonathan and the armor bearer. And everybody knew at that point. Saul knew. The people of Israel knew. We have this victory because Jonathan became our champion. But they did not know that until the battle was already won. Now, Verse 18, And Saul said unto Hiah, Bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. What happened here? Here's what I think is going on here. Saul looks out and he sees this great victory that the Lord is accomplishing for them. And he gets excited. And he feels an overwhelming urge. You know what that urge is? To help. To do something. They were helpless. They were hopeless. They see the Lord accomplishing this great victory for them. And he says, hi, uh, get the ark. Uh, form the troops. Let's, let's do something here. Let's see if we can, we can help the Lord out. Let's see if we can do something. And then the Lord sends a spirit of wisdom to Saul. And he says, well, hold on, hold on. Ahiah, withdraw thine hand. This is the Lord's battle. This is the Lord's victory. We're not going to put our hand to this at all. This is his doing. All we're going to do is sit back and watch 
as the Lord defeats all our enemies for us. Verse 20. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very, very great discomfiture. They all march up there and they just watch. They don't get involved in the battle, they just watch as these men destroy each other, the Lord having accomplished this victory for them. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Everybody who defected and aligned themselves with the Philistines. You know what happened after this great victory? They all came back. They were all reconciled back to the kingdom. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. Everybody who had left, everybody who was hiding in all those false refuges, what happened? They were reconciled too. After this great victory was won, the whole kingdom is reconciled together. And verse 23 is the conclusion of the matter. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Bethaven. Now, there is a lot that we can learn from those verses. But I want to pick out just a few things today to talk about. If I had to pick one verse of Scripture that sums up this story completely, as best as you possibly can, it would be one thing that Paul said. And this is the verse. I'll give it to you. It's Romans 11, verse 36. For of him and through him and to him. Are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him, of who? Of Christ. Through him, Christ. And to him, Christ, are all things. And you can't take that all things too far. All things are of him and through him and to him. But what Paul is specifically talking about there is all things in salvation. All things in salvation are, number one, of Christ, of speaks of origin, they begin with him. They are through Christ, through speaks of means, he is the means of salvation. And they are to Christ, it all ends with Christ, it all comes back to him, it all returns unto him. And that is the main teaching of this story right here. Now number one, all things are of Christ in salvation. Where does salvation begin? It begins with a God-man named Jesus Christ. The Father loved a man. He chose a man. One, one, a God-man, his son, the second member of the Blessed Trinity, Jesus Christ. All his love was found in that man, and he elected that man. He chose that man. And when he did that, you know who else he got to? He got every member of the elect. We have always had that eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are in Him, and we always have been. We're talking about eternal things here. How could we wrap our minds around this? We don't have to. It just is. We accept it. We have always been with Him. Therefore, when the Father loved Him and the Father chose Him, we were loved. We were chosen in Him as well. That's where salvation begins. It begins in Christ. That's why the elect were chosen. That's why they, why they were loved. It begins with Christ in this respect. He is who? He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now we're going to get more into that in the main message this morning, but this is where salvation begins. Salvation begins 
with a slain lamb, with a successful Savior, one who has always been the atonement for his people. That's why the Father could love us. That's why the Father could choose us. It all begins, all of salvation flows from this slain lamb from the foundation of the world for a particular people. And we have that illustrated in our story here. Where does the story begin? Does the story begin with the people going to Jonathan saying, we're helpless, we're hopeless, go be our champion, go fight this battle for us? Not one person approached Jonathan. Does it begin with Saul saying, go be the champion for the people? Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree without a clue what to do. Where does the story begin? The story begins with Jonathan and Jonathan's purpose. He sees his people outnumbered, distressed, unarmed, can't win the battle, can't fight for themselves. And Jonathan purposes to be the champion of his people, defeat all their enemies for them, and reconcile the whole kingdom back together. This is all according to Jonathan's purpose. Why? Because he loved the people of his kingdom. And this is the purpose of Christ, to come and to save his people single-handedly through his death to defeat all their enemies. Why? Because he loved them from the foundation of the world. And I find this very interesting. I think this is a beautiful thought. When Jonathan did this, he purposed and he did. He executed. Who did he tell about it? Not one soul. Jonathan purposed this. He went out. He defeated the armies. And not one of the people who were rescued through Jonathan's actions knew about it until the battle was already won. I think this is wonderful, but when the Lord saves a man in his experience, what does he find out? He finds out that he has been saved. It's not that I believe and therefore now I am saved. What you find out when the Lord reveals Christ to you, he has always been my surety. He has been my lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I've always had his love. Before I ever knew him, he knew me. Before I ever loved him, he loved me. Before I wanted anything to do with him, he had something to do with me, always watching over me, ordering my steps every single day. This was planned out through the eternities that I would come back to him through his work. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Salvation's of Christ in its origin. Salvation is through Christ, and that speaks of the means. He is the means of salvation. That is illustrated in our text as well. Now, Jonathan, what way did he purpose to go up to the Philistine army? The humanly insurmountable cliffs. Two of them were named, Boses and Sina. Boses, you know what that means? It means glistering white. Now, when you think of that, this glistering, this shining, pure white, what does that speak of? It speaks of the very righteousness of God. Boses and Sina. You know what Sina means? It means thorny. Where do we first read about thorns? Back in Genesis, Adam falls. He disobeys God. He takes on a sinful, wicked, evil nature that can do no good. He is cursed. But it wasn't just Adam that was cursed. The Lord cursed the ground for Adam's sake. Thorns rose up. The curse, Boses, the righteousness of God. Sina, the curse of man. These are the two humanly insurmountable obstacles to salvation. What is God's demand? Perfect, glistering, white righteousness. 
The only thing he will demand is absolute perfection, holiness, without spot. The law must look me over and say, you have never done anything wrong, and you have always done that which is right. This is the first obstacle to salvation, the righteousness of God, the righteous demand of God that a man be perfect to be accepted. And here's the other obstacle, Sina, the curse, man's inability to rise to that level. Cursed, dead in trespasses and sins, he can't meet that bar. He can't even take a step toward it. These are humanly insurmountable obstacles, Moses and Sina. But who found a way? Jonathan found a way. He said, I know a way, arm bear. I know a way to get up there. Christ found a way. He found a way for his father to remain what? Just. To honor his just character. To accept nothing but glistering white perfect righteousness. And still do what? Justify the ungodly. Those cursed by the law. Both those cursed by Adam's fall. He says, I know a way. I know a way to get up there. There's a pathway. What was the pathway that Christ could honor his father's justice and still justify his people. It's his cross. He went to the cross. The sins of God's people became his. He died under the wrath of God for those sins and through that absolutely and utterly putting them away forever and the very righteousness of Christ becomes his people. That we actually have it. That it really is ours. That we are in the eyes of God glistering white. We can meet the demand. We pass over the bar. We are what he demands us to be because of the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jonathan went up there and slew all the enemies on top of that hill, just as Christ at the cross put away all the sins of everybody he died for. And now we meet the demand. What I want you to recognize is this, and it's illustrated in the text. This is not forensic. This is not an accounting matter. This is not a spreadsheet where I used to be sinful, but we're going to move this factor over here and the righteousness of Christ is going to be added to me, but nothing actually changes. No, this is real. Right now, if you're a believer, if your hope is in no one but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, understand this, you are the very righteousness of God in Christ. How could that be? It's illustrated in our text. Right here. Jonathan comes up. He says, armor bearer, I'm going up the cliffs. I'm going up first. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to come up right after me. And armor bearer, everywhere I put my hand, that's where you put your hand. And everywhere I put my foot, that's where you're going to put your foot. We get to the top. I'm going to slay the enemies. And armor bearer, you're going to slay right behind me. As I put them down, you're going to stick them while they're down on the ground. What did we say about the armor bearer? Everything Jonathan did the armor-bearer did. This is union with Christ. That union is so real that when he walked the paths of righteousness, that he actually kept God's holy law. You did. You did. You did it in him. That means it really is yours. You have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no separation between the two of you. You actually have it. When he went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for your sins, that's where you died. You've already been punished under the law. God is just. He will not punish sin twice. You've already been punished in Him. And now we meet the demand. We truly do meet the demand in Jesus Christ. This is real. Nothing fake about this. Nothing forensic about this. 
This is real for every believer. All things are of Christ. All things are through Christ. And finally this, all things are to Christ. All of it comes back to him. Now, answer this question. What is the armor bearer's name in this story? We don't get it, do we? Why not? Because it's not important. There's one name that is going to be sung when this battle is all over. There's one man who is going to be praised and honored and carried on the shoulders of the people when this is all over. Just one man, because just one man was the doer of all of it, and that was Jonathan. Jonathan's going to get all the glory. All things come back to Christ. They all end with him. They end in this, in God's eternal purpose being accomplished. The full salvation of his people, complete in Christ, to where we owe nothing, nothing to bring to the table, nothing to do, complete in Christ, so that his son will get all the honor and all the glory. How important is it, if you are a member of the elect, that you personally be saved? The very glory of Jesus Christ hinges on it. And this is the eternal purpose of God, to glorify this man, Jesus Christ. That means if Christ died for you, you must be saved. The justice of God demands it. The purpose of God demands it. You must be saved. Who are these people? Those are those who look to Christ alone. It's just that simple. And here's what I want to leave you with this. What's the message of the gospel? Jonathan said, armor bearer, here's how we'll know. We're going to walk up to the garrison. We're going to reveal ourselves. We're going to listen to some key words. And if we hear Terry, stop, wait. The Lord's not in it. The gospel is not wait. And the gospel is not Terry. Don't wait for anything. Don't wait to get better. Don't wait for an experience. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't you Terry one minute. This is the message of the gospel. Armor bearer, if we hear these words... We know we have the victory. Well, these are the words of the gospel. Come. Come. Come to Christ. You come right now. You come as a sinner, and you come just as you are, and you will be received. You trust him just the way that armor bearer trusted Jonathan. I will follow you wherever you go. Your will be done just like that. That's where I'm going to leave you all.